Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was brought, or for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his, his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Praise to God for this promise and his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for everyone over the last four years who've been praying for me, been praying for my ministry. Uh, I think it's made a big difference. I am excited about today because today marks the beginning of the season of Advent. Historically, Advent has had a very special place in the Christian calendar. For those who don't know or those who need reminder, Advent simply means coming. And we observe the season of Advent, the Advent of Christ, in two directions. One, the first coming of Christ at his birth, and the second Advent of Christ in his second coming. And we observe this by by looking back and reflecting with joy on the first coming in his birth, And we look forward to the second coming, the second advent of Christ, with expectation and longing. Advent is a time to prepare our hearts, to take out all that clutter, all that stuff that's distracted us, distracted our minds and our lives, and put it to the sides so that we might give Christ our fullest attention. Today, the first Sunday of Advent, as we learned, is hope. And it's my prayer that this passage in Isaiah and everything that God has given me here today to share with you will give us a sure hope for the days to come. Did you know there's a virus going around? It's everywhere. It's deadly and it's destructive and I'm not sure if we've figured out how to deal with it yet. It keeps, it keeps spreading in plain sight. No, I'm not talking about the COVID virus. I'm talking about something a little more insidious than that. What am I talking about? I'm talking about cynicism. Now, now hear me out. I'm, I'm not making light of the COVID virus that has been wrecking our world. I would never dream of doing that. I do believe that cynicism is a virus, a virus of the mind. I'm not talking about skepticism. 
A healthy skepticism is good and it's necessary. Cynicism is anything but. James Dobson called cynicism the sinister sin. So let me define it for us before we go further. Cynicism at its core is a distrust of others and often a bleak outlook on the future. It's a jaded, scornful, negative attitude where others' motives can't be trusted because everyone's got an angle. It's a corrosive pessimism that creeps into our hearts and seeps into our relationships, poisoning everything that it touches. Author Scart Sernew called cynicism frostbite of the soul, arguing that cynicism deadens us from the inside out, making us joyless and lacking at times love towards others, all the while masquerading as intelligence, saying, I'm just a critical thinker. Paul Miller writes, to be cynical is to be distant. While offering a false intimacy of being in the know, cynicism actually destroys intimacy. It leads to a creeping bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. The danger for you and for me is to grow cold and cynical in hard times, to numb ourselves to pain, to numb ourselves towards those we're called to love, and worst of all, to numb ourselves towards God. Cynics are often cynical because they have been hurt by someone or something. Someone has broke their heart, or they've lost their dream job, or someone really important to them has been lost. Cynics are often hurt people, and cynicism is one of the ways that they deal with it in order to protect themselves from further suffering. It's kind of like a coping mechanism, albeit a very poor and destructive one. So why am I talking about cynicism on the first Sunday of Advent? Well, we live in an age of cynicism. And if we're not careful, our minds are likely to get infected with this virus. I see it and I hear it a lot every day. I see it in my family. I hear it from my friends. I hear it in the church. I hear it in my own head. Maybe the best way to have started all of this would have been to say, Hello, I'm Lucas, and I'm a cynic. Does God's word have anything to say about cynicism? It sure does. Isaiah, in fact, was written to cynics. And in our passage, Isaiah 9, the prophet gives us, and his, future, his past audience, the anecdote to, to cynicism. He gives us exactly what we need to fight our cynicism. What is it? What is that anecdote? Hope. Hope. That often misunderstood essential of the Christian life. Not wishful thinking, not, not hope so, but a hope sure. Gospel hope, gospel hope is a hope rooted in a greater understanding and appreciation of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a confident expectation of good things to come because good news has come. 
It's a rock-solid expectation that God is going to do what he promised to do. The late R.C. Sproul wrote this in his commentary on Romans. Hope is not taking a deep breath and hoping things are going to turn out all right. It's assurance that God is going to do what he says he will do. The only thing that's going to fight the cynicism in us is the hope of the gospel. And this is my main point. Because our cynicism is a deadly virus, we must arm ourselves with gospel hope. And how do we do that? Well, we arm ourselves by remembering three gospel promises. The promise of light, the promise of freedom, and the promise of peace. So let's get into it here. Our first promise, the promise of light. Reading from Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So let's do a quick background here for our text. 800 years before Jesus comes, Israel suffers under Roman rule. The Syrian army dominates the Middle East and along with it, Israel. Many Israelites are then taken and exiled out of the land. They're taken out of the promised land into captivity. Back in the land, there's just awful food shortages. People are starving. Nearby enemies have now taken this opportunity to jump in and make life more hell for them. The suffering and misery are indescribable. Isaiah here uses the word anguish to describe it. So where was God? Was he absent? No. In fact, God brought this upon his people. Why, you might ask? Because it was a punishment for their sins. Again, we see in verse 1 here, he says, He, God, brought contempt upon them. God brought judgment upon his people because of their sin. From turning from him to idols, for the rich and the rulers abusing the poor amongst them, Israel was not innocent by any stretch. And God had warned them through his prophets that he had been sending them to repent, to turn from their sin. And when they didn't, he turned them over to their enemies. Hunger led to anger. Anger against their king. Anger against their God. And anger towards each other. Cynicism, that darkened heart, grew amongst the people. The cynicism gave birth to disunity and disorder. In spite of this, God promises to intervene. Promises that their darkness won't last forever. That there's hope. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. If you've read your Bible enough, you've encountered this light and darkness theme before. 
And here, darkness points to the reality that God's people were walking blind. Their sin is so great that they don't know up from down. They were in spiritual darkness. And this is our natural condition. We aren't born walking in the light only to stumble into darkness. Paul explains in Ephesians 5.8 that at one time we were darkness. Earlier in the letter, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Here I believe Paul is just equating darkness with death. Without God intervening in our lives, in our world, we're spiritually dead. We're separated from God, completely helpless. We aren't simply thrashing out in the ocean, hoping not to drown. We're at the bottom of the ocean, crushed under all the weight of that water. But God doesn't leave us in darkness. Paul explains in Colossians, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. God rescues us from darkness. Jesus, as he commissions Paul for his ministry to the Gentiles, tells him that he will open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Both passages highlight our need for our sins to be forgiven. And that's exactly what God has done. He has sent Jesus into our world, the true light, in order to save people from their sin. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says they will be saved. In the Gospels, we see Jesus enter into darkness. He does this by going to the cross and dying, taking our sins upon himself, taking our darkness upon himself upon that cross. And then he goes and he enters into a pitch black tomb so that you and I can walk in light, so that we can be brought from spiritual death to eternal life. This reality should give us hope Not just hope for the future, but hope for right now, for today. We don't have to stay stuck in our darkness and grow cynical and grow distant from God and from others. So how do we take hold of gospel hope in the midst of our darkness? It begins with prayer. Lifting up prayers of thanksgiving for God, for saving us from our sin. A thankful heart leaves no room for cynicism. Here's another quote from Paul Miller. A praying life is just the opposite of cynicism. It engages evil. It doesn't take no for an answer. The psalmist was in God's face hoping, dreaming, asking. Prayer is feisty. Cynicism, on the other hand, merely critiques It is passive, cocooning itself in the passions of the great cosmic battle we are engaged in. It is without hope. So let 
your hearts, let's let our hearts overflow with thanksgiving towards the Lord in this season of Advent. The light of the world has shone into our darkness, fellow Christians. The psalmist sums it up well when he says this, enter his courts with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. This is the response to the gospel promise of light. All right, point number two, and the promise of freedom. Verses three to five. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah's words here would have raised some eyebrows. Joy? An increase of the land? This would have seemed unfathomable to the people as they, they're in the midst of suffering. But God is giving his prophet here a vision of the future, a future of his people, God's people rejoicing before him, a wild celebration amongst the people of God. He gives two illustrations of the wild celebratory joy that is to come. First, he says that the people will jump for joy like people do when they see an unusually massive harvest, a huge yield of crops. And second, when people observe the hordes of goods being brought home by the troops after an enemy has been plundered and defeated. Great joy. What is this joy connected to, though? In verse 4, it says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Yokes. Staffs and rods were weapons of oppressors to keep people enslaved. Isaiah is using language here that he is used earlier about Israel's exodus from Egypt. Leviticus 26 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk upright. God is promising a freedom to his people that he gave to them when he freed them from, from Egypt. There will be no more burdens, no more blows, no more tyrants to rule them. They'll all be defeated. The gospel promises us the same thing, doesn't it? It promises us freedom from our enemies. Satan, sin, death, all our main foes, they've all been defeated. They no longer have the power over us that they once did. Sure, they continue to battle us right now, and they continue to try to discourage us in that battle. But we must remember that they are defeated foes. Verse 5 talks about their defeat when it says, Every warrior's boot and every garment rolled in blood are gathered up and will be burned as fuel for the fire. There's this image of this great bonfire 
and all of the enemy's military equipment, all the military hardware is all thrown onto the heap. Shields and armor and chariots and swords and spears, everything is thrown on top of it. Everything is committed to destruction. This illustrates how total the defeat is of the enemy. The enemy is utterly defeated. The war is over. On the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin's mastery over us. He's conquered our enemies. Paul, John Piper wrote this. There is no disease, no addiction, no demon, no bad habit, no fault, no vice, no weakness, no temper, no moodiness, no pride, no self-pity, no strife, no jealousy, no perversion, no greed, no laziness that Christ will not overcome as the enemy of his honor. So now the inner cynic in me is saying what is likely the inner cynic you is saying, well, I don't feel or experience this right now. Or I look around and see others just giving in to whatever they want to. Why? Our temptation at times is to turn back to Egypt when things get tough. When stress builds and the darkness of the world grows heavy, we want to run till we know best, right? So I will simply ask you this. During this uncertain season of stress and gloom and darkness, what have you been turning to for your comfort, for your protection, for your satisfaction? What is the promises, what is it in your life that promises you freedom, but you know it is something that God would have you turn away from, run away from? You name those things, and you've named your idols. Our cynicism, that pessimistic, negative attitude in us, only is fueled further by the idols that we worship. So right now, take your focus off what others in the church are doing, or maybe outside the church. That might be your parent, it might be your spouse, it might be your child, your friend, your leader. And instead, examine your heart. Root out whatever idols reside there. Remember the joy that Isaiah spoke of. That, that wild, celebratory joy. That joy is our strength to root out and destroy those idols. That we might be better suited, better equipped to fight the cynicism that so easily entangles us and tries to drag us down. This is our response to the gospel promise of freedom. Lastly, we have the promise of peace. Look at the text with me one last time. Verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Okay, so we've come to our last gospel promise. And this might be the most important promise for us today. We're likely very familiar with these words. We hear it every Christmas. And everything has been building up to this point. For us, a child is born. And to us, a son is given. This is the promised son who would be Emmanuel. God with us. We know this to be the incarnation. God breaking into our world by becoming one of us. And what a welcome promise this would have been to the Israelites in Isaiah's time. Life was not peaceful. Their kings had not ruled well. In fact, they had ruled terribly. And because of it, they now found themselves under great suffering. This son, however, would change everything. Restoring order and bringing peace. How about you? Do you feel disordered? Does the world feel disordered to you right now? Our world has been turned upside down over the last 10 months, has it not? It feels like no one has control over what's happening. And those who think they have the answers are divided. There's division in our families. There's division between friends. There's division in our churches, in our nations. There are lots of things that would tear us apart. There are a lot of things that would fuel the cynicism in us and and continue to fuel this age of cynicism all around us. We need help, don't we? Thankfully, we have it. Verse 6, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Our shoulders can't bear everything that's happening around us right now. But there is one who can. And Isaiah uses four different names to describe what he's like. So first, He's a wonderful counselor. His wisdom is extraordinary and unsurpassed. His ability to plan and carry it out is unrivaled. He is the most wise. Two, he is mighty God. His power is limitless. He can do whatever he sets out to do, and there is nothing or no one who can stand in his way. Why? Because he, the Son, is God himself. No matter how alone you might feel, God won't leave us to walk in the dark valleys by ourselves. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He is also everlasting Father. No, the Son and the Father are not the same person. That is a heresy that's been dealt with centuries ago by the church. This means the son cares for his people like a father cares for his children. With gentleness, tenderness, covering them, protecting them. Finally, we come to the last name and really the climax of this whole section. The Prince of Peace. 
He is the ruler who comes to put an end to all war and strife, to end hostility between us and God and between us and each other. Paul says this about Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. One body means we have a deeper unity in Jesus than all of our differences put together. And hear Jesus' words in the Gospel of John when he says, I have said to you these things that you may have peace. So Jesus is our Prince of Peace. He is the one who sits on the Davidic throne. The long-expected king who rules with perfect justice and perfect righteousness. This is where our hope for peace in the midst of chaos and disorder is found. We're not going to find it in politicians. We're not going to find it in new policies or programs or productive gear. Our peace is found in the person of Jesus. Now let's apply this to our lives in a really practical way. Christmas time is a really tough time of year for most people. And I'm afraid that this Christmas season will probably be harder than many past years. Cynicism is likely already knocking at the door of your heart, ready to come in and do damage to whatever it can get its hands on. Don't let it. Keep your mind focused on Jesus. Spend some time meditating upon this passage. Go to the Gospels and re-familiarize yourself with your King, your Prince of Peace. Isaiah gives this promise later in his book when he says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God keeps us in peace. He gives us peace and rest when we keep our minds focused on Jesus. So don't underestimate the power of meditating on the gospel, meditating upon his grace, meditating upon his great love for us, the great patience he has shown us while we struggle in darkness. Let's fix our minds on Jesus. This is the response to the gospel promise of peace. Wherever you find yourself this Advent season, struggling under the weight of a thousand worries, growing restless wanting to see change in others, in the church, in yourself, dealing with the fear of health, finances, or an uncertain future, don't struggle or wrestle without the hope of the gospel. Don't do it without Jesus, the Prince of Peace. When cynicism creeps in and begins to cause you to despair, causes you to distance yourself from God and from others, remember to arm yourself with gospel hope. And we arm ourselves with gospel hope by remembering three important gospel promises. The promise of light, the promise of freedom, and the promise of peace. Let me pray for us. Oh, Jesus, 
This is such a good word and a, a necessary word for us today. I know it has been like a bomb on my heart the last few weeks as I've prepared this. Lord, as we enter deeper into Advent season, may this joy that you speak of in Isaiah 9 be our joy. May we remember again the great light that you've shined into our world, into our lives, by sending your Son, Emmanuel, to dwell amongst us, to tabernacle amongst us, that he might save us, that he might remove our darkness, he might remove the separation and the hostility that there was between us and between you. Help us to remember that our peace isn't found in anything outside of us in this world, but it's only found in you. You, Jesus, are our Prince of Peace. You are our rest in times of hardship and suffering. May we remember this, and then may we give you all the worship and glory that you deserve. We pray this all in your holy and awesome name, Jesus. Amen.